Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to episode 483 with my return guest, Nathan Rabin. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room. It doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. You can also follow me on social media at uh, MetalPod on, on the Instagram and the Twitter. Uh, I decided to take a semi-break from the episodes we've been doing on the coping with the pandemic. Although the, the episode that I chose to air today, even though I recorded it, in late February, before the stay-at-home orders were given, um, I think it's an appropriate episode to air because so many people are under financial strain uh, right now. So I, I am, I'm, I'm hoping you guys dig it. Also got some good surveys to read from the pandemic survey, from the love survey. Um, yeah, I I hope you enjoy it. Somebody, one of the things that people have been responding to that they find the most comforting and that makes them laugh and smile are the memes that are going around. And somebody sent me this one, and uh, it's if Donald Trump had captained the Titanic, uh, things that he would say. Uh, there is no iceberg. We won't hit an iceberg. I knew it was an iceberg before anyone else knew. No one knows icebergs better than I do. The penguins brought the iceberg here. No one could have predicted the iceberg. We cannot allow an iceberg to stop our ship. The crew is spreading fake news about icebergs. Some of you have to drown. And I am the best captain, ask anyone. I don't know who generated that meme. But uh, it made me laugh. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, one of our sponsors for today is uh, the online therapy provider, BetterHelp.com. 
if you have never tried online therapy, it's uh, it you really really should. I love the relationship that I have with, and and I mean that in the most inappropriate way. <laughs> no, it's a very appropriate relationship I have with my therapist Donna. One of the things I like about using BetterHelp is uh, sometimes she will message me through uh, the BetterHelp platform during during the week. Um, you know, when I shared with her that one of the things I've been doing uh, is learning how to bake bread, like a million other people, uh, she sent me this article during the week uh, about the scientific basis that people find baking bread to be comforting. And uh, this is just an example of how it's different than a lot of the in-person therapy that I've had in the past. And I uh, certainly don't need to point out that it's a lot safer to do online therapy than it is to do in-person therapy. I like how I said I didn't need to point that out. Then I pointed that out. So anyway, uh, if you're curious about it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental parts so that they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, This is from the love survey filled out by Murmur, uh, who identifies as non-binary. And they write, "Um, my three cats, when I was in one of the deepest, darkest spots of my life, I found them in the garden looking like little black fuzzy Twinkies. I bottle-fed them, and they kept me awake and alive. I found them on a Friday. I'd been planning on leaving the earth the following Monday. I see them as a test from whatever unholy trickster god watches over me. Thank you for that. And I'm glad you're still here. These are responses that people have to the question in the pandemic survey. And by the way, if you're a a new listener, there's about a dozen different surveys that we have on the website that you can take. You can also, depending on the survey, see the responses that other people uh, have to the the questions. But these are people's responses to the pandemic survey. Um, And in particular, the question, has there been anything or things during the pandemic that have made you laugh laugh or smile? and here are some of the responses. I saw a sleepy puppy on one of my walks. He was sitting but leaning in towards the wall of his house every time he almost dozed off. He kept waking himself up and fighting the sleep spells. I could have watched that for hours. He was a black lab. He was my favorite thing in the world in that moment. When I'm feeding a stray cat and she comes close to eat the food. Oh, I love that feeling. I love that feeling. Watching movies, it always made me laugh as a child. Listening to your show, Paul, I laugh all the time. I'm sad, but life is funny. That should be a t-shirt. I'm sad, but life is funny. Um... My boyfriend is really sweet. He cooks for me every day. He makes me feel protected. We make a lot of jokes. How excited my husband was when I downloaded Disney Plus. That that for me would be torture during the pandemic, watching Disney Plus. But I'm glad that you you enjoy it. Um, And this is obviously from a Brit. Um, 
seeing all the messages of support to the National Health Service people, um, that people have stuck to their windows. We had a few nice days last week, and on one of them, I went out on my back porch, smoked a lavender spliff, and felt inspired to draw again for the first time in ages. That was the nicest moment of this month. I felt like me for a moment. I'm not sure what a lavender spliff, uh, how that's different from a regular spliff. Obviously, it smells like lavender, but what is it, the, the rolling papers smell? Or maybe it wasn't weed. Maybe it was just lavender. Yeah, I doubt that. That doesn't sound like a good time. Uh, we got a young cat right before this quarantine started. It was pure luck. She's been making us smile. Oh, I'm so grateful to have Gracie during this. She is... Uh, she is just... I just feel so lucky. Reading stories about how much the environment has improved during the pandemic makes me feel like there's a glimmer of hope for us. A lot. My partner is so funny. I made him a skeleton slash pirate mask, and he said in his best pirate voice, Yar, matey, COVID got me sailing with the skeleton crew. I apologize for my pirate voice. <laughs> there was such a half-hearted attempt at a pirate voice. Why, why didn't I just commit to it? I love this one. My friends standing outside my window and holding up a sign saying, we miss you. Oh, that's like something out of a, a John Hughes movie. And I mean that in a good way. Walking into the family room to see my five-year-old daughter singing R.E.M.'s It's the End of the World at the top of her lungs. And I love this one. When I get anxious, I start to run into things and drop things, which leads me to breaking things and hurting myself. I don't love that part of it. And I'm told I look like a game of mousetrap where one mishap leads to another. I've had a lot of moments like that lately as I've been a nervous wreck. One such moment involved me literally slipping on a banana peel. <laughs> the old smelly cat comes out of hiding to check on me when she hears a game of mousetrap in progress. Maybe she thinks it's a mouse. Generally, when the pandemonium is over, I find her looking up at me with a what-the-fuck-is-wrong-with-you look. That look on her face cracks me up every time. My friend had a virtual birthday party. We silly danced for a while. It also made me laugh to see my mom trying to learn where to position her phone during a video chat. Oh, that is such a great one. Oh, I love how older people, and I should include myself, but I, I have yet to start doing this, where they frame themselves <laughs> where it just looks like a head. And my, uh, my girlfriend's mom and dad have it, it looks like they coat the lens of their phone with Vaseline every time <laughs> we FaceTime with them. Uh, my commute has been taking about 30 minutes less to get to and from work. I know it's selfish, but it really makes me just a little happier. Making coronavirus jokes with people I know can handle it. Our Prime Minister, this is sent by a Canadian, uh, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, singing about speaking moistly. I, I watched it and it is funny. Especially uh, if you have not seen it, you need to Google it. Uh, listening to my youngest FaceTime with her friends, their laughter and happiness is infectious. 
I have to admit, I enjoy reading about the science deniers getting sick. It's a kind of justice I like to see. People being willfully ignorant and tripping over their absurd beliefs. I feel really good about the amount of trash I'm not generating. I have to use smaller garbage cans now, and I can see how much consumption my life how much consumption my life is when I cannot I don't know if I'm reading that right. And I can see how much consumption my life is when I cannot go shopping. Oh, I see. They can judge how much they're consuming. Uh, I love the clean air and lack of noisy traffic. Oh, I'm loving the clean air. When I was walking the dog, I saw four households with their lawn chairs sitting at each corner of a four-way neighborhood intersections, hanging out together in the sunshine at a safe distance. I also went to a friend's house to drop off masks and talked on the phone with her and her family, me being on the porch and them being inside looking out the window. Those were nice moments. Oh, that sounds so sad to me, like they're in suburban prison. Uh, not laugh with joy, but laugh at the absurdity of people buying a hundred rolls of toilet paper. I hope all the toilets in their houses are forever clogged. Uh, we are lactose sensitive and we are truly appreciating the sound of our farts. Oh, I love this one. My three-year-old walked up to me and said, mommy, you're a cute little mommy and then walked away. Norm MacDonald's coronavirus stand upset, and I've been watching old episodes of Scare Tactics. I gotta check out that Norm MacDonald set. I feel okay when I'm driving around, and recently I recalled how you, Paul, said that you always feel like the driver behind you is mad at you. I laughed out loud when I remembered this because I'm a pretty new driver and always assume that everyone else on the road is mad at me. Sometimes I speed just because I imagine the person behind me would like to go faster. I'm so glad this feeling can afflict new and experienced drivers alike. Every night we try to stock the shelves and block everything to make it look neat, knowing the mob of people waiting for the doors to open in the morning is going to fuck everything up within 20 minutes. Along with the whole toilet paper ridiculousness and how they are just now, like today, setting limits on how many people are allowed in the store at one time. That is one of the creepiest things is waiting in the line outside the grocery store, six feet apart from everybody, all our masks on. And I was doing that one day uh, with, with my girlfriend. And during a moment of silence, a crow was just making its crow sounds. And it was like a Hitchcock movie. This episode is sponsored by Cerebral. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. And I can recommend uh, cerebral. I have uh, been doing sessions with uh, my therapist, Megan, and she's intelligent, compassionate. Um, this last week, I had therapy with her, and she helped me prioritize uh, the things that I've been stressing out about. She helped me clarify things from a state of vagueness to what are some actionable things that, uh, that I can do. And, uh, and I felt a sense of relief 
All Cerebral clinicians are vetted, credentialed, and trained to help you feel better. They stay up to date on the latest studies and breakthroughs so they can provide quality care that's based on rigorous research. To get started on your path towards better mental health, Cerebral is giving you guys 15% off your first month of online therapy, medication, or both. Get started at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use the code mental. That's Cerebral, C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash podcast. And don't forget to use the code mental to get 15% off your first month. Make 2024 your best year yet. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Uh, this is a new question to the pandemic survey. If you could describe the pandemic in a sentence, how would you do it? And these are people's responses to that. You all live like me now, and for that I'm truly sorry. Fuck, 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 fuck. Oh, this isn't too bad. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Nothing is fine. Humans are a virus and the planet is trying to heal itself. Oh, this is a good one. Boredom laced with death. An adult timeout. I like that one. It's like the world contracted OCD, but now the thoughts that I've spent a lifetime challenging as illogical are commonplace and deemed justified, filling me with the uncontrollable urge to laugh hysterically and bawl my eyes out, all while assuring Netflix that I do want to continue watching. That is so great. An invisible invader keeping us in our places. It's like a fucked up sci-fi movie that you actually enjoy watching until it becomes your reality. Forced self-reflection. Nature is trying to restore balance, including thinning out the population. The world is confronted with togetherness through isolation. The era of introverts. Oh, that is such a good one. I love this one. It's like a group of people going door to door to spread the good word of their religion and we're all hiding inside of our houses until they finally leave the neighborhood and it's safe to go outside again. (laughs) A wonderful potpourri of all that required dystopian literature from high school. I remember, speaking of the word potpourri, in college I was reading something aloud in class and I pronounced it because I didn't know, I, I pronounced it potpourri. And the teacher very, very gently <laughs> informed me that it's pronounced potpourri. Justice in the wind. Proof that my solo introverted hobbies are worthwhile. Dumpster Planet 2020. A timeout from the status quo for the super wealthy and conservatives to re-strategize how to continue to justify unchecked capitalism as being more important than the public good. 
a chance to have the record scratch and then place the needle back wherever we want. Internally, this is epic magic. My liver is my war wound. The scarring was done during the great pandemic. If there is one thing I know, it's that I know nothing. It's like being grounded while watching your neighbors play outside. Our sponsor today is Gravity Blanket. You guys know the importance of good night's sleep. Well, Gravity Blanket is the most popular weighted blanket for sleep, stress, and anxiety, and it's the only blanket that's scientifically proven to improve sleep quality and reduce stress. Gravity Blanket uses deep touch pressure simulation and gives you the sensation of being hugged. With these blankets, you'll get a deeper, more restorative sleep while your body's production of stress hormones decreases. You can choose between 15, 20, and 25-pound blankets in a variety of sizes, including king and queen size. Gravity also has an impeccable lineup of additional relaxing products, including weighted eye masks and new bamboo sheets designed to give you a perfect night's rest. It's funny, I was talking to my therapist about two years ago saying, for some reason, when I have weight on me, it relaxes me. And a lot of times in the morning, if I'm having trouble uh, getting up because I just don't want to face the day, I'll call my girlfriend into the bedroom because she always gets up before me and I'll say, can you just lay on top of me? It, it's, I don't know, there's something about it that just is so soothing. And my therapist said, yes, this is an actual thing. And some people will buy like 50 pound bags of rice and lay them on themselves. And I thought, well, eh, that sounds a little bit much. I don't know if I want to make my own jambalaya. And when my agency said the Gravity Blanket wanted to advertise, I was like, yes, I would love to try that. And uh, I got the 25-pound queen, and it is what I hoped it would be. Girlfriend digs it. She was a little skeptical at first, but it's really cool. It's really cool. So uh, learn more about Gravity Blankets. Dot com and use the promo code METAL to get 20% off your purchase today. That's gravityblankets.com and use the code METAL to get 20% off the blanket that everyone's talking about. And then finally, our last uh, response to the uh, struggle in a sentence regarding the pandemic. This person writes, It's like a snow day that never ends. And all around me, everyone is complaining about shoveling the driveway and not being able to go anywhere while I'm outside sledding and making snow angels. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure and i was being a dick to everybody we are social beings and the only way you're going to get it out is to cry we need to be with people i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies well, maybe listen thanks people. for coming in <laughs> i'm here with nathan rabin who uh, was a guest, what, eight years ago? Something yeah, a, like that? A, a very long time ago. A very long time ago. You Did you have a child on the way, or had you had just had I, him? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I 
did not have a child at that point. Like, my oldest child is five years old. In fact, I think you had just gotten married. Yes. That yes. is entirely possible. Yeah. yeah. 2012 yeah. That's when I got married. And I've thanked you many times before, but I just want to thank you again. Uh, Nathan was formerly the head writer of the AV Club, uh, the Onions AV Club, and you were a champion of this podcast very early on that really helped me get some traction and get some listeners, and it it means a lot to me. Oh, it really oh, means a lot to that me. That is very kind of you to say. I used to have power when I wrote for the AV Club, uh, and then I wrote a column for Split Cider uh, called Pod Cannon, where I also wrote very glowingly of you uh, and the podcast, uh, and I tried to use my power for good. <laughs> I tried to be an advocate and an evangelist uh, for the yeah. podcasting medium, uh, and, and in, a, in a weird sort of way, I'm very proud of what's happened with podcasting, yeah. and in a way, like it, it kind of it blew up, but it never quite exploded. You know, I kind of felt like it sort of hit a certain uh, certain level, mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of nice. I kind of feel like it's still something special. You know, you have to understand podcasting, kind of have to be part of that world to really connect. It's it it goes so deep and so niche in so many areas. It's uh, that's what's so so great about it. Um, I, I suppose the challenge is sifting through the shitty podcasts to find what it is that you want and having the time to listen to all the podcasts that you want. But oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's one of the uh, challenges that I've wrestled with uh, over the course of the last couple of years is uh, I got fired from my job for the first time in like 2015. And I had to kind of uh, create, you know, sort of this world because I felt like sort of the the world that I was a part of had kind of died, you know, it kind of imploded. What was the job? Uh, I was, God, I was a staff writer for a site called The Dissolve. Uh, and it was- The Dissolve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was Pitchfork's film site and I got fired about a month before it went out of business. Uh, and I feel like if I had gone down with the ship, that would have made it a lot easier. Uh, yeah. But I feel like I, I kind of had no choice. Mm. So I kind of like scrambled to kind of uh, survive, you know, in, in this very uh, kind of difficult uh, moment for my business. <laughs> and I feel like pop culture and the world as a whole. So at that point, you had a child, you had a mortgage, you were married, and you had to move back in, not back into, but you had to move into your in-law's basement. I did, I did. Was, this was 2015. That uh, sounds exhilarating. <laughs> it was a trauma. But the thing about it, and I also, I mean, I got, I got fired by a man who was the best man at my wedding. I got fired by a man who I dedicated my fourth book to. Uh, so that just made it even harder because I felt like there were these people who believed in me. You know, there were these people who, who had faith and this faith is what gave me a career and what gave me this life that I loved, but that was really, really fragile and really, really delicate. And it just felt like everybody was giving up on, on me in that moment, you know, and it just felt absolutely crushing. And I had a wife uh, I had uh, who was, yeah, she was six months pregnant um, when I got fired, you know, and that was just absolutely brutal. And I'm like, I can't afford to live in my city anymore. I can't afford to be a house owner. Um, like kind of everything that I was afraid of when I was writing my fourth book about fish and insane clown posse, you know, I was afraid of these important relationships 
dying. I was uh, afraid of losing my job. I was afraid of not being a major uh, house publisher, uh, published by a major publisher anymore. And all of those things happened. And I had to move in with my in-laws in their basement. And it was, and I think part of it is you embrace the dark comedy of it. You know, you have to make it a joke. You have to uh, find a way to process it or it becomes overwhelming and, and, and devastating. And I look back and I think, why didn't I save more money when I was living in the basement? Because I didn't have to pay for the rent. I didn't have to pay for food. Like everything should have been set. And I think what it was is if I paid off all of my debt and I had no money and I was living in my basement, that would be unbearable. You know? So I had to have at least a little bit of money and that made living in a basement uh, possible. But again, it's just all these things, you know, like my relationship with my mother-in-law has always been very complicated, you know, and she has very um, traditional, uh, conventional ideas of like what a man's role in the world is. And it's it's not to be some weird man-child in a fish hoodie writing about insane cloud posse and weird movies for uh, an increasingly small audience. So that was really difficult because I felt like I wasn't the kind of man she wanted her uh, daughter to end up with. And that's understandable, (laughs) you know, like... And I would want my, my son to end up with somebody who, you know, has a secure uh, and dependable livelihood where everything isn't just incredibly mercurial and you're living from paycheck to paycheck and you're perpetually cognizant of the bottom uh, and of hitting the bottom and of like where the gutter is. Were you given a reason for being let go? Was it a financial decision? I mean, yeah, definitely. You know, like we would not have, uh, they would not have let me go if they were not going out of business. And kind of the reason they gave me was that I was so sloppy in my writing that uh, I slowed down the whole editorial process. And that made all the sense in the world, you know, because I've never been an editor. I want to talk about the emotional effects of being in debt and the hopelessness that i don't know if it comes or goes or if it's there all the time or the fear uh so many of the listeners that i hear from are buried in either student loans or you know they're not even able to get a job that they're overqualified for and it really takes a toll on them emotionally. And while your story may not be totally similar to theirs, it sounds like there's a lot of overlap. And so I'd like to kind of hear your battles with debt uh, in a way that they might be able to relate to what the inner battle is oh, as well. Oh, because yeah, I was definitely thinking about this uh, kind of when I, when I was on my way over. And I think a lot of people wrestle with this and a lot of people deal with this. A lot of people feel overwhelmed. Uh, they feel powerless uh, before a debt. And I think just because so many people are experiencing it, that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk about it. I feel like that's an even better reason too. I was also thinking that being in the kind of debt that I'm in, is sort of like being suffocated with it very, very slowly with a very soft blanket. And it's so slow and it's so soft and it feels so weirdly comforting that you don't realize how much peril you're in and what a bad situation it is. What's comforting about it? I think it's just, there's uh Usually, 
with debt, there's a, an abstract quality to it. You know, it's you owe this money, but it's kind of a, a theoretical sort of thing. And what has happened to me at various periods in my life is it went from being theoretical to being literally the sheriff at the door <laughs> with, with a summons saying you are being sued. Uh, and I wrote about this actually for your, for your website, uh, I guess it was seven, eight years ago, and it was picked up by Gawker. And what happened was I was working on my book and I was major uh major house public uh author at scribner and i was the head writer for the ev club uh and i didn't have children so i should have been in a very good position financially but i had spent so much money writing this book you don't know maybe you don't like me about fish and insane clown posse they racked up something like thirty-five, forty thousand dollars in debt because you you were slow in producing I, it, well, it took it took twice as long to to write it and turned to be like a very expensive very pricey book to write uh, and i was just so overwhelmed and I was kind of looking at my finances and I realized like I'm paying eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand dollars a month just in interest. I was paying all of that money just to continue being in debt indefinitely. So I thought I need to do something to get out of this horrible situation. So I signed on with a debt consolidation company and it was very, very reassuring at the beginning because they're like you're in trouble. A lot of people are in trouble. We're going to help you. We're going to get rid of like your $30,000 worth of debt and, you know, for like $15,000. And again, it wasn't even like they were promising amazing things. They're mm -hmm. like, we will help you so that you pay slightly less. Uh, so I signed on with this debt consolidation company. And what I had to do is I had to stop using all of my credit cards because uh, they all kind of went into collection. And what I realized way, way, way too late is that the debt consolidation company that I got involved with were worse than the credit card companies. Why, why did I see that coming? I, I don't know why. Because, again, you go through life wanting to believe in people. And you want to hear voices that are soothing. And I wanted to believe that this was real and genuine. And I felt so stupid. And, and, and again, I think that's part of what makes debt so difficult is you feel such shame. And you feel so... Uh, like guilty. You feel like I've created this problem and I can't control it and it's overwhelming and it's overbearing. What what uh, red flags should somebody know who is considering doing debt? Well, I'd say look, 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 do your due diligence, you know, look around online. Like how, this, how did you get screwed by them? Oh was my, it the fine print? Again, I think it was just, I just looked online on Google, you know, and what I realized too late was that they uh, get paid every month. Like they would, I'd, I would send them $600 every month and they would do nothing. And they, their whole business model is that they wouldn't do anything for three years. And after three years, then they would start negotiating with credit card companies on your behalf. And what I realized was I can do that myself. You know, I literally can just call them and be like, hey, instead of $6,000, how about I pay you $4,000? Like, that's not what you want necessarily, but it's something. And that's all they do. Like, I thought they had, like, some sort of magical information. I thought they had connections. It's like, no, all they do is wait for some broke, vulnerable motherfuckers to be desperate enough that they can, like, come in very, very late. And after they've received all of these fees and all of these uh, things, then... So what happened was uh, I stopped paying my uh, credit cards and they all went into collections. And then, yeah, one morning, Saturday morning, I woke up and there was a knock at my front door and there was a dude from the sheriff's office. And they said, you are being sued by American Express uh, for non-payment. And in that moment, I said, fuck, no, it was supposed to not go this way. So, God, I was things were going really, really badly at the AV club. I was just barely holding on and I would need to 
sneak out of work to go to the how was that Harold Washington Center, that like place downtown in Chicago. Yeah, and just just week after week after week, I would go and find. The only way that I resolved it was I got my final payment for my book, and I was able to just say, "Hey, guess what? American Express here is six thousand dollars. Please go away forever." Um, and then, yeah, I was I was so so proud of myself that I had gotten out of debt. Um, but then, yeah, it it just it it it's cyclical, and it just keeps happening. And yeah, two years later, when I when I got fired from my from my uh, from my job, I was just like, I and and the other thing too is like, there's so little room for air. Uh, you know, um, and it also it, it dictates what your life is in so many different ways. You know, there's just stuff like you know, like my my dad is, you know, in a nursing home in Chicago, and he's fucking miserable, and I can't go visit him regularly because I don't have any money. You know, and it's hard not to feel like you've done something very wrong and you've screwed up, and this is the universe punishing you but because you uh, don't live in Chicago anymore. I, I mean, just yeah. I, I mean, I, I moved out of Chicago because I couldn't afford to live there anymore. You know, mm-hmm. and, and the other thing too is like I'm only able to just barely get by because my wife's father is a doctor. You know, and the thing is that I'm only able to get by because I have these uh, uh, bursts of book money. You know, every couple of years, uh, some book money comes through. And that's the most mercurial thing in the world. Oh, my God. You know, there there are a few things in the world less dependable and less certain and less stable than book money. Yeah, and it's great that you got into books just as books were declining. You know, well, and that's the other thing too is that I kind of so when I was recreating my career, uh, and I had this, Jesus, I, I wrote this article, I wrote this column for my year of flops. Yes. Uh, and, started, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe books aren't declining. No, no, I, no, they totally are. The whole industry is in the center. Everything is terrible forever. Um, so yeah, so I was, you know, I had this column, uh, my my year of flops, and then it was my mm-hmm. world of flops, and I, I published a book, and it did very, very well at the very, very beginning. Uh, and then when I left the AV club, right when they were really exploding, when they were becoming very, very successful, and then again, also being the great genius that I am, I left them right when I had a book to promote. <laughs> you don't know me, but you don't like me. And then, yeah, I waited, you know, it was like six months until I was in my new place. And, yeah, they had no interest in promoting my book or anything. And then, yeah, about a week and a half before my website was about to launch, Nathan Raymond's Happy Place in 2017, it was a Friday afternoon. I got an email uh, from my editor there. And I'd kind of slunk back to the AV club in shame and said, can I at least do my column? People seem to like my column. And they're like, no, I guess so. People do seem to like your dumb column. Uh, So I did that. And again, it was kind of, I'm just doing money. I'm I'm doing work in exchange for money. And then, yeah, there was a Friday uh, Friday afternoon, and I got an email from my editor saying, yeah, you know, I know this isn't great, but uh, due to declining page views and the uh, changing needs of the pop culture landscape, we're going to have to cancel my um, year flops. Uh, you can write a farewell article thanking everybody, uh, and, and EV Club in particular, uh, and I was literally like, this is the most valuable thing that I have. Like, this is my signature thing. And the people who I've devoted my life to are saying it's not worth $425 a month. You know? What, like, the, what, the, the publicity, like, the value, everything, it's not worth $425 a month. So so what goes on uh, emotionally, mentally, uh, 
and how is that affecting your life? We, I, I think yeah, we get yeah, a yeah. picture of how the finances oh, yeah, are yeah, affecting so, your life. Again, it's, it's the universe saying you fucking suck and these things that have value. And again, I think part of it too is that like I was successful early on. You know, I was running for the AV club when I was 22 years old. I signed my first book, Crack Contact, when I was 31. And I thought, I grew up feeling worthless and inadequate and like I have no value. And a lot of that was related to money. Like my dad was always broke and my dad always needed money. And I felt so ashamed on his behalf and I felt so vulnerable and I felt so powerless, uh, you know, and children, I think inherently feel vulnerable and powerless. But when you have a parent and they don't have any money and they're struggling just to get by and yeah, my dad had two kids and <laughs> just like I had two kids and there came a point where he couldn't take care of them anymore. And that was because he had multiple sclerosis, but it was also because, you know, he lived on a $13,000 a year pension, you know? And I was like, I don't want to fail my children. And my dad didn't fail me, you know? It was just that he couldn't, uh, he couldn't provide for us. And that was painful. And I lived for that every day. And I grew up in a, in a group home. You know, I spent mm -hmm. the last five years of my adolescence in a group home. So, yeah. And what happened was I... I after I left the uh, Dissolve, after I left the V Club, like had all these these columns, you know, like had these columns for Rotten Tomatoes. For and, what? Like, the same thing. Rotten Tomatoes, I had a column okay. called The Simpsons Decade. It was like a very ambitious look at the 1990s comedy and everyone called Subcult and the Zeros. And every column I had just got canceled. And I went from being in a place where feeling like I'm bulletproof and I'm invulnerable and if I'm just uh, if I work hard and I'm loyal and I'm diligent and I just keep my head down and I focus on being the best possible writer that I can I will be okay and what I found out is that, like that doesn't protect you at all and, and I think you could you could really spread that to any profession and that's the dark rarely talked about side of the American dream the yeah. the pointy end of the stick of capitalism oh yeah yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, is like, I feel like when it's going away, I, I felt like I relied on that professional success to fill the hole inside me, you know, that I publish books, motherfucker, <laughs> you know, I may not have any friends, I may be broke, uh, you know, I may not be able to spell or, or use grammar correctly, but I had like, you know, this career that I was super proud of, I did a television show in, in Los Angeles, uh, God, about 15 years ago, you know, all of these things I allowed to tell me that I was a successful human being, you know, and that meant so much to me. And when the professional success started to really slide, it had, uh, it caused me to really doubt myself, you know? And, and I think that's the, the, the danger. I was just talking to uh, a guest about this the other day and she's a psychiatrist and she was talking about how we can mistake our role for our identity and that mm -hmm. can set us up for extreme disappointment oh, and stress yeah. because we're we're ignoring the fact that we just innately have value regardless of what we're doing but in a capitalist society um so often that that is what our identity or you know uh, we're a stay-at-home mother or you know, we're, you know, somebody who has some particular struggle that we're looking at every day. It's hard for that not to become our identity. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think on so much of my identity was I'm a successful writer. Uh, and when you get less and less successful, that's causing you to, you know, 
re-explore kind of what's going on mm. and then also what your conception of success is. And I think part of what makes it so uh, terrifying and uncertain is I went from you know, being employed by a big organization, by a big corporation to doing crowdfunding and subsisting off Patreon. And the nice thing about Patreon is people believe in you and they invest money and it feels so wonderful. And you feel like you have this group of people whose belief gives you wind and powers you, mm -hmm. gives you strength in yourself when you don't necessarily have it. And then the Patreon goes down. And you're like, oh, my God, the universe is abandoning me again. And all of these people who were saying, here's $20. I believe in you. I have faith in you. I love you. When they take that $20 away, like the dark, paranoid, apocalyptic part of my brain is saying, you know, this is the uterus rejecting you again. And these are people taking away. And, and I had this, this this positive experience where I spoke to like a, a consultant from Patreon and they said, basically people generally support you for two years or so. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very kind. And then they move on. So the idea that everybody who is a, as, as a patron is going to be with you forever um, is completely delusional, you know, but to, to live with that constant rejection. And again, it's like it's a soft rejection and it's a low level rejection. It's, right. a, you know, $5 being deleted or $10. Being, it's not, you know, the best man at your wedding telling you to you know, take up all of your belongings and then leave the office. Because, the box yeah. of shame. Exactly. The box of shame. And I, yeah, I wrote, I wrote an essay about that, about yeah, getting fired. And I think also because I hadn't gotten fired in 18 years, mm. you know, I just kind of lived in this world where as long as I am loyal, like I'm protected. And I think what happened is I realized I'm not protected. And the scary thing is as a father and a husband, like I can't protect my family as well. And that's what feels terrible, what, you know? How how has, if you can give me any snapshots of your relationship with your wife or moments of being a father where debt or lack of money. A sh a sure, I guess kind of one very dramatic is when I kind of signed on with the, uh, when I signed up with the Shady Debt Consolidation Company, I had to, uh, again, not stop using all of my credit cards. And then I, I think I paid like $12,000 in taxes because I had a very good slash very bad year. So I remember it was literally, it was Valentine's Day and I was like getting a root canal and <laughs> they charged my credit card and it declined. So I literally had to call my wife with, you know, like a mouthful of gauze and say, I'm sorry, <laughs> my credit card went declined. Can you please like have your father like charge this here? And I just felt like such a piece of shit and such a loser. I mean, even like, you know, I'm, I'm here in Los Angeles and I have no, uh, money on any of my credit cards and I have negative $261. So what's happening is I'm somehow able to get around Los Angeles via Lyft, but that's because they don't understand that. So they're charging me $35 every time I use my credit card. So everything, so being poor and being in debt is incredibly costly. And that is that's a huge part of the mind fuck is that it's like I'm, I'm, I pay, you know, a thousand dollars for the mortgage. I pay a thousand dollars for my child's uh, education. And then I pay a thousand dollars to continue being in debt indefinitely. And I'm like, I get an enormous amount from two of those. And one of those, I just makes me angry and so frustrated. And again, it feels overwhelming. It feels like I'll never get out of it. And I go through these, these cycles and, and in some of these cycles, I'm just like, okay, I'm never going to get out of debt. And I just need to live with that. I just need to accept it. And I need to just stop fighting it. 
but you can't accept it because that level of debt is so much and so vast. Are you comfortable sharing how much you're in debt? Yeah, I'm about $30,000 in debt. Like okay. as of as of now, I have about $30,000 of debt. I literally have maybe 4 to $7. <laughs> no, no, I've got about $23. I have $30,000 worth of debt and I've got about $23 on those uh things there and I have negative $261 uh in 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 checking and I'm married to a preschool teacher. That's the other part of the equation is my wife, God bless her, does incredibly important, wonderful work that makes the world better and will never get paid any kind of a decent living wage. And again, that's just one of these shitty things you kind of have to accept. My mother abandoned me when I was two years old. You know, she died alone and sad. My father has no money. I feel, you know incredibly guilt-ridden that I'm not able to like go to Chicago on a regular basis and spend time with him, but I can't. I just don't have that money. The money is, you know, uh, living paycheck to paycheck. So you can't do the things that you desperately want to do, and that just fucking sucks. Talk about the ways that people question you or treat you when the subject of you being in debt comes up. Well, that's... Because I, I talk about this a lot with my therapist, uh, who I believe has read a lot of the same Eckhart Tolle um, books that I have. And one of the reasons, one of the ways that I've, like, made this uh, palatable, you know, one of the ways that I, like, I made this manageable is that I write about it a lot. And I write about it in a way that's really cathartic and a way that I think hopefully other people can uh, identify with. And be like, I'm not the only person who's in debt. I'm not the only person who feels like a loser and a failure and overwhelmed and like they'll never get out of this horrible situation um but at the same time i feel like i'm very cognizant and very weary of projecting this desperation and this grubby sad uh, energy that is putting people off you know because i feel like yeah that's that's the well i believe it's bringing comfort to a lot of people that feel alone and are filled with shame i have no doubt that that's you know you're your, we'll put links to all your stuff, but the, uh, the, the long read that I read, um, was, was really great and empathetic. And, uh, I don't know. It was like a feeling that you're creating a debt community. Yeah. Everybody yeah, yeah. needs their tribe. Everybody needs, and we don't really uh, get a chance to, to the opportunity to choose what our tribe is about but we get to choose who the members are definitely definitely and it's it's funny i was uh i have a facebook group called society for the toleration of nathan rabin <laughs> i feel like that's the most i can ask for most days you know you don't have to love me just please just put up with me uh and i remember saying like i'm, I'm really worried because you know my rotten tomato columns that are like I think I made like $1,600 a month at some point on that, which is, you know, really, really good and kind of helped uh, sort of power the the whole uh, Nathan Rabin economy. Uh, and yeah, member group is like, oh, that's like a really bad look for you to be complaining about that. Like you're trying to guilt trip other people into giving you money and saying that we're losers and we're not good enough if we're not giving you money. Like, why don't you go drive the Lyft? Why don't you do an Uber? Why don't you like get a job as a technical writer and like stop complaining? complaining about money and my response was fuck you (laughs) very kindly but i don't know how to drive i don't i I can't do these things and and i understand that you know I, i feel like there are people who would say like why would you have a second child if you can't uh afford the first one and there's definitely something we said that like obviously you should not run up a lot of uh costs you know but 
you also like human beings should not exist because you have a bad uh, credit score. <laughs> you know, like I love Harris so much and he's such a wonderful human being. And I realized when we had this child, like I'm kind of signing on for struggling financially for the rest of my life. I kind of signed on for because I'm a pop culture writer, um, because I try and do something that's pure and good uh, and has value. Um, like I'm probably always going to wrestle with financial insecurity and I'm always going to wrestle with financial instability and you have to come to terms with that and you have to make peace with that or it will destroy you and it will add an additional element of horror and pain and judgment because that's again i feel like there's the the judgment from without and then there's a the judgment from within as well i you think know? you i think you need to write a debt horror movie yeah. <laughs> that i think that would be hugely popular that that, that makes because yeah it, it, it's a fucking horror story uh yeah. being poor and again i feel like it's something that that people uh, are reluctant to talk about in part because they don't want to come off as whining and complaining and woe is me and and yeah i remember when i was, I was kind of pitching you on this idea and you said oh like i'm sorry that you know you're having these issues and, you know, sort of the, the, the apologizing Midwestern is like, oh, it's okay. Other people have bigger problems. Other people have more debt. And it's true. Other people do have more debt. Other people do have bigger problems. But that doesn't mean that this isn't a huge problem. It's not a contest. And it's also something that our society uh, encourages. You know, we live in, I mean, God, you think about like college in college, you know, they got those debt. Uh, they got those little booths where they're like, hey, if you sign on for a lifetime of debt, you'll get a free Amer American Express hat. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and when you're 18 years old, like, ooh, I would like a free hat. That seems good. Uh, and then you sort of talk about just these moments in the journey. And I've, have this weird relationship with American Express where they sued me. Uh, and I said, no. And then I settled with them. And then they're like, hey, we want to give you a credit card with a lot of money on it. And I said, fuck yeah. I perpetually need a lot of money. So at one point, American Express, uh, American Express card had $8,000 credit limit. And I said, this is great. I can go and uh, finance part of the publishing of my book with mm -hmm. this money. And uh, yeah, I had this moment where I got a letter like three months ago and they said we've been looking at your account and we've decided to cut your credit from eight thousand to fifty eight hundred dollars from eight thousand to what fifty eight hundred dollars right. and i needed that too and again that two thousand two hundred dollars would make the difference between me having zero dollars on my credit cards and like having fifteen hundred dollars mm -hmm. and they were saying even though we can make money off you you're such a bad bet and you're spending money so irresponsibly that we're, we just want to cut our losses you know and yeah it's it's overwhelming and uh what 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 comes up and what are some of the things that and maybe you've answered this already yeah. but when when people insinuate or say directly you're irresponsible uh, with money. You mentioned some of the things about, you know, why don't you drive Lyft, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Why did you bring a second child into the world? Um, what are there anything, any things that, 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 that people have said where you think, you know, uh, 
that's valid. Maybe I need to look at that. And this is not me, uh, you oh, know, no, no, no. backdoor way of criticizing no, 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 you. No, not at all. That's because that's the thing, too, is people have sort of said, like, well, if you're having such a hard time and you're struggling making a living as a pop culture writer, like, why don't you do something else? And the answer to that is I literally don't know how to do anything else. It's not like I have this choice between, like, oh, I could be making $100,000 working in advertising or I could be making $40,000 a year as a pop culture writer. It's like I've never worked in advertising before. Like, I literally have no other skill set. And it's kind of like, you know, the Mount Almost Happy Hour. Like, you know when you're doing something right. You know when you're doing what the universe is wants you to do. And when the money doesn't always line up, that can be really, really frustrating. But that hasn't caused me to lose faith in what I'm doing and in my website. And, you know, I read a lot about popular culture because that's my history and that's my background. But I also write a lot about depression. I also write a lot about debt. I also write a lot about parenting. You know, I, I kind of, this is an opportunity for me to communicate with the world to be like my best, purest, truest self. And that has a value that goes beyond money. And it has a money that goes beyond words. And it also, so thank God I'm able to pretty much finance my column with crowdfunding, you know, mm -hmm. and I always, I'm in this place where I only ever have just enough or not enough. You know, I never have, I never have abundance. I'm never comfortable. Has your wife ever gotten upset with you about finances I, you know she worries she worries a lot my 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 mother-in-law worries a lot uh for the big whoop uh which is my blog post where i read about a lot of uh you know very intimate very serious very personal things i know there's like a subsection of blog posts that will worry the fuck out of my mother-in-law <laughs> you know it should be like are, are you guys in trouble i like are things bad and i'm like well, I have no money and I have $30,000 worth of debt and my Patreon haul decreases month after month. So in a very real way, yes, I am in trouble. In another way, everybody else is in this boat and I'm incredibly grateful that I get to do what I do. And I'm grateful that I go to write books. And I'm grateful that I like get to talk to you and I get to spread the gospel of mental and happy hour. And again, like I was, you know, able to do something good for good people in a way that really mattered. And that feels so validating, mm -hmm. you know, and, and when people respond to, but again, stuff like, you know, I'm doing a uh, appearance at dynasty typewriter. Uh, on Saturday afternoon. For the uh, listeners uh, outside of L.A., Dynasty Typewriter is a uh, venue um, in, is it in Koreatown? Where, where, I'm where not is sure. It? I've, I've never yeah. been there. It's in Los but, Angeles, yeah. and it's a great, great uh, venue uh, started by Jamie Flam. And yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, I believe his partner, Vanessa? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And a very, very popular, great, great venue. So. Yeah, and I'm very, very excited about that. It'll be like my first event here in Los Angeles in like seven years, but like, I need to sell books <laughs> on like a very concrete, like I need money for the lift back to the airport. <laughs> like that's how broke I am. And, and again, I feel like it puts all of this pressure on things and it should just be this wonderful sort of celebration, you know, that I've like done all this stuff for, and I've worked so hard to get back into a place of promoting a book, you mm -hmm. know, like, uh, and, and I've done it all on my own. Uh, and I feel like everything means so much more now, you know, because when people come to see me, they're coming to see me because they support me, because they support my career, because they mm -hmm. believe in me as a human being, not because they like the AV Club or they like right. The Onion, you know? Uh, so yeah, the, the margins are very, very different, but the satisfaction uh, is also a lot more profound. 
Well, thanks for coming by again, Nathan. And, um, so many things that, that we could put links to, uh, for people to check out and read both free and, uh, things that they can buy. Uh, if you were to name the top three that you would like people to check out, what would they be? Oh, definitely. Uh, check out my website, Nathan Rabin's Happy Place. Uh, it's NathanRabin.com. Uh, my name, N-A-T-H-A-N-R-A-B-I-N.com. Uh, secondly, I wrote a book called The Weird Accordion Now. Uh, it's a follow up to the coffee table book I wrote with Al uh, where I write about every single track on all of Weird Al's albums uh, and it's yeah it's gotten a great response Rolling Stone uh, just wrote some nice things about it uh, yeah it's just a Slate podcast and then uh, yeah I've got a podcast called Travolta Cage where me and my co-host say the name of it again uh, Travolta Cage Travolta, Travolta Cage. slash Cage uh-huh. uh, where me and my co-host Clint Worthington we go through John Travolta and Nicholas Cage's filmography uh week by week, film by film. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a whole lot of fun. I think we're on episode number seven. We just did, uh, did, uh, we just did uh, Blowout, the great, great, uh, great Brian, Brian De Palma yeah, movie. Yeah. Yeah. One, one a lot favorites. of careers sprang from that movie. Yeah, that was a, oh man, that's a, a great, great movie. Uh, and then uh, Peggy Sue Got Married. <laughs> she was so good in that. Yeah, it was the first time that, that, that America said, what the hell is Nicolas Cage doing and why didn't anybody stop him? And then, yeah. Oh, actually, I loved him in that oh, movie. Oh, he's freaking nuts. And it's it's such a big, 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 big choices, you yes. know, and like a film and Jim Carrey's very big uh, mm-hmm. that movie as well. Yeah. In the next episode, we have uh, Staying Alive and Raising Arizona. So wow, a great, 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 great movie and a wonderfully entertaining, terrible, terrible movie. Yeah. So. Staying Alive was so fun to do on dinner in a movie. The, the cheesier the movie, the more fun we had with it, kind of lampooning it. Um and, and it's funny because Saturday Night Fever is such an amazing movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I love just the idea of uh, <laughs> a depiction of Broadway in the 1980s where everybody's straight and no one uses drugs. <laughs> like, what? No. And somehow making, you know, the everybody's straight and nobody uses drugs resulted in the druggiest, most homoerotic musical of all time. Uh, who would have thought that Sylvester Stallone wouldn't be the right person to write and direct a sequel to Saturday Night Fever? Oh, my God. Well, Nathan, thank you. Thank you for coming by, and thanks for doing what you do. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. The, the same for you. Same to you, rather. Your grammar's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Many, many thanks to Nathan. What uh, what a nice guy and a great writer. You should check his, his stuff out. Um, one of our sponsors for today is Archer and Olive. When you got a million thoughts buzzing around your head, getting them out of your head and onto some paper can immensely help your mental health. Well, if you're like me, I am constantly jotting ideas down, but I'll do them on little scraps of paper and then I can never find them when I need them. Or I'll find him two years later and go, well, the time passed to use that idea. Well, Archer and Olive is the premier company making super cute notebooks and planners designed for people interested in bullet journaling or planning. Now is a great time to learn a hobby that can actually help manage some symptoms of anxiety and depression. Archer and Olive's founder, Bonnie Cool, started the company because journaling helped her manage her own mental health issues. Archer and Olive offers free tutorials and a printed blog, printable blog to help you get started with creative things like bullet planning, journaling, lettering, doodling, and all kinds of art and journaling tutorials. Each notebook and planner is made with superior, 
Slow down, Paul. Superior quality and attention to detail, including an eco-friendly box that it's shipped in. And the cute, inspiring designs are created with the help of independent artists that are paid fairly for their work. I got the uh, 160-page dotted A5 Night Owl, and it is a really, really beautiful, well-crafted thing. One of the things that I love about it is when you open it up, it will lay perfectly flat. Um, it's got a little back pocket. You can put little mementos in or whatever you want to slip in there. Uh, and I'm starting to use it to keep a journal of the things I do with my bread baking endeavors. One of the things you need to do when you're baking bread is uh, weigh each of the things that you're making them in because sometimes you'll need to know what those what those weights are later. So got it right there on my kitchen counter. Right now, you guys can get 10% off by using the code HAPPY at archerandolive.com slash mental. That's code HAPPY at checkout after visiting archerandolive.com slash mental. Let's get to some surveys. This is from the Love Survey, and this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Leonardo de Cringy, and he writes... Uh, when you're so lost in painting a picture that you haven't realized that the song or podcast you're listening to stopped hours ago and you didn't even realize the silence. It is bliss. That's a great one. Jesse Poo writes, I love falling asleep to my dog laying on my husband's pillow, looking at me with all the love in the world. I love how we assign that emotion to them when maybe they're sitting there thinking, when is the next time you're going to get up off your ass and fucking feed me? Hearing my daughter sing to herself, which she does 24-7, making up the words as she goes, at times completely carefree. Oh, that's beautiful. These are loves filled out by an agender person who refers to themselves as Dravian's cat. I love walking home at the end of a work day. The trip takes about an hour. I don't have to rush, and I live in a city with lovely clean air and lots of parks. I listen to podcasts or whatever else I want to and enjoy the time to myself. I love it when somebody in an obnoxious four-wheel drive overtakes me because I'm driving, quote, too slowly, i.e. at the speed limit, only to be held up by someone turning in the other lane. Bonus points if they come back in behind me, but there are now two or three cars extra between us. I love the ridiculous nicknames my family used to give our pet chickens. I love the smell of fresh paint. I love creating stories with absurd numbers of seemingly unrelated characters with the intention of neatly tying their narratives together at the end. I love when I commission art for my characters and the artist falls in love with them as much as I have. And finally, I also love pigeons. I was happy to hear you read the survey of someone who loves pigeons. Thank you for those. Pickle writes, I love the way my nails sound against my phone screen when I'm typing. I love the feeling of getting into bed after a really long day. I love the smell of melon-scented candles. I love the way my hands look. I love the feeling of taking a gulp of cold water and feeling it travel down your body. 
and I love cracking my knuckles slash neck. I'm always a little jealous of people that can crack their neck. It always seems like your neck would feel so relaxed after that. This is uh, the question in the pandemic survey. If you could describe the pandemic in a sentence, how would you? And these are people's responses. It's watching a train coming towards you as you are trapped in a car on a railroad crossing. Bringing us together by staying apart. (laughs) This is a good one. Uh, SARS bragging. Coronavirus, hold my beer. Slightly ideal for all the wrong reasons and feeling guilty for that. The external manifestation of the chaos that I feel internally. Boy, I I super relate to those last two. This is the love survey filled out by Badass Bunny. She writes, I love autumn. I love early nightfall and I love silent evenings at my house with the mist and fog rising up among the copper and gold treetops outside my window. I love the smell of wet earth and damp leaves and of smoke from distant wood fires. I love the soft crackle of the fire in my own stove and its radiant warmth. I love how alive and safe it all makes me feel. That's beautiful. It almost started to sound a little bit like the the Will Ferrell character, uh, the Lava character that he does. This is a struggle in a sentence. The general struggle in a sentence one. Filled out by a guy who calls himself Hurt Reynolds. About his depression, he writes, Walking in a massive crowd with both shoelaces undone. You're stumbling and you can't stop it or fix it, only agonize over it. About his ADD, a merry-go-round of random thoughts. When it stops, nobody knows. About his alcoholism and drug addiction, wanting to live in that two-to-four-beer buzz feeling, but always ending up in that 24-beer nightmare. About his love addiction, going to a social gathering, falling in love, and breaking up 12 times. And about his sex addiction and compulsive masturbation. If she doesn't want to sleep with me, I'll go into the bathroom and make her sleep with me. And then a snapshot of his sex addiction. Making sweet, passionate love to my beautiful partner. Then going into the washroom when it's my turn to clean up and rubbing one off to the thought of her friend. That sounds like you have a lot of anxiety and pent-up feelings in you. And I hope you I hope you get some help for that because you don't you don't have to bear that that burden alone. There is there's help out there. There's a lot of great support groups. And also great therapists that specialize in sex addiction and sex and love addiction and sending you a hug. This is from the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Alexander Manchild. And about his depression, he writes, like I'm a ghost behind my body trying to marionette myself around. That's such a good one. Any comments that make the podcast better? More tacos. I will get right on that. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Beautiful Disaster. And she writes, this one's kind of bittersweet. Uh, She writes, I was my mother's caretaker for 17 years off and on. My brother and sister didn't think anything was wrong with our mother after her triple bypass. 
I began fully taking care of her the last year of her life, bathing, feeding, helping her move throughout the house. Easter weekend, she flatlined in my driveway as that was the first time she was able to leave her house as no one else had a wheelchair ramp. Uh, I built her one for her house, and Easter morning I built one for my house. As they were leaving, my mother went lip in, limp in the passenger seat. I brought her back with CPR. I spent the next two days with her in the hospital. As I sat, I watched her body shut down. I called my siblings. They said there was nothing wrong with her. She would be fine in a few days. She passed the very next morning. What makes it a happy moment for me is that I was the one who got the last of the, quote, squishy hugs. In parentheses, she was a larger woman. Hours before she passed, she was in a deep sleep, and she wakes up long enough to see I'm watching her sleep. She said, Sissy, stop being weird and staring at me. It'll be okay, as she kissed my forehead. That was the last coherent thing she said. Oh, thank you for sharing that. These are people's answers to the uh, question, Has been have there been any things during the uh, pandemic that have made you laugh or smile. Having more genuine, connected interactions with grocery store checkers, seeing artists and companies make content free out of solidarity, downloading TikTok and loving people's creativity. A random stranger on Reddit in my community zipped all over town delivering food and toilet paper to people for free. Walking into stores and not knowing immediately how or where to stand and still follow the guidelines for physical and social distancing. It's like being at a junior high school dance where everyone is awkwardly standing around wishing that it was over. That's so good. I woke up two days ago, reached for something weird beside my bed, beside my head on the bed and realized I was gripping my puppy's turd. Everyone I encounter at stores or out for a walk seems to feel the need to smile, make contact, or crack a joke. I'm so touched by the beauty of the human spirit. I love the food that hasn't even now sold. Apparently, people would rather starve than have Aunt Jemima's whole wheat pancake mix. My coworker recently gave himself a questionable haircut, and a few of us offered to also give ourselves solidarity bad haircuts. Uh, I'm getting really close to pulling the the clippers out. My girlfriend is begging me not to. There is this joint sense of helplessness I have with everyone I call, like I don't have to apologize for my mood for once because everyone can feel it. Playing soccer with my daughter. Yesterday, seeing a bald eagle. That's cool. I don't know if I've ever seen a bald eagle. Well, I know I've shot hundreds of them, but that was just because I was randomly aiming my my 1920s era Tommy gun. I should mention that's how I celebrate my birthday. Is I put a blindfold on, and I go out into a nature preserve, and I fire 500,000 rounds. The city announced the police were not responding to anything not life-threatening. Chaos ensued. 
I won't lie, the illegal street race I attended at a socially safe distance had me whooping and jumping up and down. That's a great one. It sounds like the 50s. I was watching about 10 minutes of, I don't know what made me the other night want to watch uh, the Marlon Brando movie, The Wild Ones, but, oh, I know, because I'm reading a book by Hunter S. Thompson about the Hells Angels, and they talk a lot in it about the influence that that movie had when it came out in, the, I think, the early 50s. And it's it's so interesting, the cliches that all movies had back then, even a movie with great actors like Marlon Brando. His acting was probably the only thing in it that wasn't cliche. But uh, the, the guys that played the gang members, they're so not threatening and they all have that kind of fake Broadway energy. Yeah, look at that guy. Just running around, just all these this hokey choreography. Oh my God, I, I could only handle about 10 minutes. I had to turn it off. Um, listening to podcasts always makes me smile, especially listening to you, Paul. Oh, thank you. I went back and listened to the few episodes where you had just gotten Gracie and hearing you fall in love with her is just the best. Oh, they're referring to my dog, Gracie. My girlfriend's name is Christina. Um, watching reruns of classic Celtic soccer to you folks games on YouTube with my friends via Skype over a couple of beers. My big sister sending me pictures and videos of my two-year-old niece toddling around their garden, totally oblivious to the unprecedented situation we find ourselves in. Oh, for the blissful ignorance of a child. I love this one. Staying home and wearing elastic waistbands. Yes, pajamas. Pajamas forever. My boyfriend and I are making a handshake. We add a little piece to it every day, and it's become so outlandish and ridiculous that by the end, I'm always cackling. I've had tons of moments that made me laugh or smile because I'm home with my daughter and husband. My daughter and I heard a woodpecker outside, and she wanted to find it but couldn't find her binoculars, so we brought a telescope out instead. We've done some fun science experiments that have led her to think mommy knows magic. She made videos yesterday to send all of her friends that she misses, during which she explained the superpowers that her pet dinosaurs have. Seeing the resilience and humor of the folks that I work with, both my co-workers and clients. This morning I went to the bathroom and was reminded that I wrote, You can do this with dry erase marker on my bathroom mirror. The Facebook group for my subdivision has people feeding others and checking in with each other and coming with, up with ideas to do each of those. I've been staying with my sister and brother-in-law and I love what funny, genu generous people they are. Working in hospitals, etc., you have to develop a gallows humor. You say things you never mean as if you do, like, maybe this time we'll just let her go to the railway tracks and don't call the police. Uh, workmate solidarity, solidarity in the face of a tense situation. A patient who our team has been working with for ages, who has been suicidal for ages, mid-pandemic has just kind of snapped out of it started shopping and feeding herself properly, planting a garden, and yes, praise God, making you proud to know they're truly embracing society again, 
even hoarding toilet paper. Watching extroverts go crazy. I get a lot of calls from extrovert co-workers. Last week, after getting home exhausted, I went to get my PJs, and in the mirror, when I pulled my pants down, I saw this huge, massive six-inch bruise on my thigh, and I thought I had a hematoma or something. When I realized, then I realized my pen had leaked inside of my pocket, and the ink had spread like wildfire across my whole upper leg. It's taken a few showers to really get the ink off my leg. I shared this with my co-workers and even showed it to our director and a co-worker, and we got a good laugh. That felt good. Boy, that seems like that could uh, easily get you a, a meeting with, uh, <laughs> with uh, what the fuck is the name of the people you get sent to? Human services. Uh, one moment was when I was having a therapy session online and we were talking virus stuff and my anxieties behind it all. Then one of my cats decided to walk right in front of the webcam and interrupt. It was a funny moment to break up the seriousness of everything and it led to a little side tangent about how cats do that and how he helps me a lot. Also how the particular cat loves to be the center of attention at every turn. And if I'm playing music or don't see him in the room, he'll make his presence known by putting his paws on my legs, standing on his hind legs, and meowing very loudly, trying to get me to give him love. So funny because as humans, I think that's, if if we didn't wear any masks, that's what we would do. Don't we all just want love? Hmm? To be honest, I am super into this social distancing thing. I'm so sensitive to strangers' proximity to me, and I get this weird joy from walking two-plus meters away from everyone. I read a set of those autocorrect text messages, uh, message images. I laughed so hard, each of the three animals came to check on me. Oh, that's great. These are loves filled out by a woman who calls herself Lust Star. She writes animals. As I'm currently renting in a place where I can't have pets, my current source of entertainment and company is the flock of pigeons that live in the roof of the building next door, who often visit my balcony and hang out with me. A lot of pigeon, a lot of pigeon lovers. Tilda Umlaut shares some loves. Riding a bike downhill, the wind blowing so hard in my ears, they sound like they're flapping and thinking how much it would hurt to wipe out in that moment, but pushing harder on the pedals anyway. Climbing into my van at the start of a summer weekend, getting ready to go to the mountains for a couple of days of real silence. Driving on road trips by myself, playing music and podcasts, and not having to compromise on what I listen to or how loudly. Oh, those are great. Uh, these are loves filled out by a woman who calls herself all the emotions all the time. She writes, I love it when I'm in a social situation, say a small circle of people talking, and a person says something that they are obviously embarrassed about or tells a joke that falls flat, only to be saved by another person who sees their embarrassment and makes them feel validated or heard. Having had social anxiety since I was a kid, seeing others help each other out in awkward social situations warms every fucking cockle in my heart. I love how much more open and accepting I've been able to become around my anxiety disorder and depression since listening to this podcast. 
I'm going to apologize in advance for the immediate run of uncomfortable and self-doubting thoughts that will run through Paul's head if he reads this sentence. That when I'm often feeling overwhelmed by sadness and frustration at my mental illnesses, I'll reach for my headphones to listen to Paul's kind and understanding voice that brings so many struggling people together. It reminds me that I'm not alone and that continuing to reach out and talk to people will not only save my life, but possibly the lives of other undercover strugglers as well. Cheers from Melbourne, Australia, Paul. Thank you so much for that. Any comments to make the podcast better? Nothing except maybe some more snuffling and licking noises from Gracie while she's sitting on your lap, please. I will pass that on to Gracie. Luke shares some loves. I love being alone with a room full of instruments. I love being drunk with a bunch of strangers. Fatally aware share some loves. She writes, I love the scent of a brand new book and to feel the sharpness of the fresh pages. I love that moment when I return home from the day and see that my stay-at-home mother slash abuser is gone because I know my brothers and I are all breathing a little bit easier in the house. I love when my cat senses I'm in distress when I'm crying myself to sleep and she'll come cuddle up against my body. I love when I'm in a really bad mental state and have reached the point of hopelessness and a train will pass by. It reminds me of my late father who worked for the railroad company for decades and it brings me that tiny bit of comfort I can hold on to. Boy, that ended in a way I didn't think it was going to end. I love when I'm distraught but trying to hold it all in and my best friend catches on and holds my hand. It's so beautiful. I love waking up early on my days off and having the chance to sit outside with a cup of tea and a blunt and just listen to the world move around me. The day feels new and like it's mine for the taking. I really fucking love that. Thank you for that. Diana writes, I love fluffy blankets, like absurdly cloudy fluffy blankets. Bonus if they smell like bleach. I have two king-size down blankets on my bed, and when I'm triggered, I like to bleach the cover and nest. These are so good. I, I, just, I, I can't thank you guys enough for the effort you put into filling these surveys out. They Not only do they th- think they help the podcast, but they help me personally. They just remind me of how much positivity there is in the, in the world. Jazzy writes, I clean houses for a living and I love when I'm vacuuming and my clients' dogs get scared. So I reach out, pat their head and say in my softest voice, it's okay, don't worry. And the dog relaxes and looks at me with so much trust and comfort. I love when my boyfriend and I are laying in bed face to face and his eyes are closed, but he smiles so sweetly when I touch his face. I love when my dad goes on wild tangents about the music he loves and how he would play a song on the piano or guitar. I love when I'm feeling very introverted and don't want to go see people, but when I do, I have the best time and connect with people on a deep level. Oh, I love that one. I love my daughter's laugh. She's eight, but she still laughs like a toddler. I love that feeling when I finish cleaning my entire house and plop down on the couch with a scented candle burning and a cup of coffee. Then I just look around and see that the home is cleaned. The home I cleaned is mine and I feel so proud of myself. 
I love that ever since I went to church and was saved, every time I think of Jesus, I feel it in my chest, like my heart is so full, it's about to spill over. Thank you for those. And speaking of God, one of the questions that uh, I asked on the pandemic survey is, if there is a God, what would you say, what if anything would you say to he, she, it? And these are people's responses. Please help me cope without doing harm to others. I don't think there is one. I think if I had to speak to my own sort of higher power, I'd maybe just calm it down, put a hand on its leg and remind it to breathe. I love that you're calming down the higher power. Is there any way you could make this world a more fair, empathetic, understanding, compassionate, and united place? If there is, please do. This other one just simply says, explain yourself. If there are so many gods people follow, what makes you so special? Give me time to make this up to my son. I'll work hard, but give me time, please. Wow, that's deep. What the fuck is wrong with you? I would ask why this is happening and to please just let it be over. And then I'm sorry us as humans have so often failed to take care of our earth and each other. What have I done to deserve this life? Please let me and my family live long, prosperous lives and die peacefully in our sleep. Oh, you're getting a little greedy there. You are getting a little greedy, but I suppose if you do get a, a face-to-face with God, which is hard Monday through Friday, why not? Why not pack the pack the list? This next one just simply says, please help us. Please keep being the collective source of connection between humans. It's pulling us through. What the actual fuck, dude? We could do with some smiting down here. Could you bring that back for a while? Why do I have arthritis and clinical depression? Why am I plagued by guilt? And why am I poor while people like Donald Trump are out there molesting people, inciting violence, scamming people, and he just thinks he's great? There is one God and he has a plan. I'd ask him to protect my parents. I have to trust in God that their will is going to take us down the right path. Please fix all this shit. We need you, God. Please help our aching world, but also help us turn to you so our hearts can be healed. And then this last one just simply says, Hi, I trust you. Thank you for those. And then finally, this is a little brief one from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Red. And I just love this image. She writes, I love that when I have to get up in the middle of the night to pee, when I come back to bed, my still fully asleep boyfriend immediately pulls me into him. What a great image. What a great image. Well, as I always say, I hope you guys got something out of this episode. I hope it made you feel less alone or entertained you or helped you feel something or release something. And if you're out there and you're struggling and you feel like you're alone, I hope this episode has reminded that you reminded you that you are most definitely not alone. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.